Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. You know, she's got this goofy friend named Elizabeth Warren. She goes... And Donald Trump is a terrible person. She gets nothing done, nothing passed. She's got a big mouth. That's the best you could come up with? Calling on Donald Trump for help is like if your house is on fire, calling an arsonist. Hello, welcome to Trumpcast, the show about Donald Trump, the man who sees planes in the sky and wonders aloud if they are Mexican fighter jets. I am Leon Nafok, your guest host, while Jacob Weisberg is on vacation. Today, we're going to talk about something that I know very little about, and that is trade policy. Donald Trump and I are not so different from each other in this regard, it turns out. Luckily, I will have someone else doing the heavy lifting for me, and that will be Lawrence Michel, the president of the Economic Policy Institute, or EPI for short. I want to talk to Lawrence because... Earlier this week, Donald Trump gave a speech on trade and wages in which he name-checked EPI and cited it in in the written version of the speech something like 20 times uh, in the form of footnotes. And this was strange for a number of reasons, one of them being that EPI is, is known as a place that promotes very left-wing ideas about globalization. There's something revealing about the fact that Trump was relying so much on their work in the speech you know, citing their papers on on the effect that NAFTA and trade with China has had on American wages and jobs. It seemed like a window onto, depending on how you look at it, either the novelty or the incoherence of Trump's political identity. Lawrence and I had what I found to be a very clarifying conversation about the pitch that Trump made to working class voters in his speech. Uh, we talked about what was missing from it, uh, what was dishonest about it, what it might mean for the future of how American politicians talk about trade. Before we get into it, though, we're going to hear the tweets, and I have to warn you that there is reason to think some of them will not have been actually written by Donald Trump. As Gawker's Ashley Feinberg wrote the other day, uh, it seems that someone else has started occasionally uh, using our man's Twitter feed, and whoever's behind the wheel so far has not been doing the best job in the world impersonating their boss. See if you can tell which of the tweets you're about to hear are authentic and which ones are off-brand knockoffs. Benghazi is just another Hillary Clinton failure. It just never seems to work the way it's supposed to with Clinton. Iron Mike Tyson was not asked to speak at the convention, though I'm sure he would do a good job if he was. The media makes everything up. For reasons only they could explain. The U.S. Chamber wants to continue our bad trade deals rather than renegotiating and making them better. ISIS exploded on Hillary Clinton's watch. She's done nothing about it and never will. Not capable. I skipped a speech given years ago at Mar-a-Lago by dopey George Will because he's boring. He never forgot My guest today is Lawrence Michel. He is the president of the Economic Policy Institute. Lawrence, welcome to the show. 
Leon, how you doing? All right. Uh, so I wanted to start by asking you how it felt to watch the speech and to hear yourself cited by name, and then I guess to read the transcript and find that EPI was cited by my count twenty times. Uh, you know, was it strange to, to, to hear that in a Donald Trump speech? Uh, it felt awkward because no one likes to be associated with a bigot and a scam artist. But the fact is that um, listen, the Economic Policy Institute has long been doing research that documents the effect that globalization and trade deficits have had on eroding uh, good jobs and undercutting the wages of the non-college educated workforce, which for most of the last 30 years has represented about 70% of the workforce. So, you know, Donald Trump is relying on our research. I think it's a good thing that people are now talking about globalization in the context of what I think is the most important topic we need to address, which is the fact that wages haven't grown for the vast majority Mm -hmm. uh, for at least 14 years and for uh, the median worker for some 40 years. And we need to be having a debate about why that happened and what we can do to get wages to grow for, uh, for everybody. I think it's unfortunate that the conversation seems to be limited to globalization But listen, there's been for several decades that anyone who would acknowledge that globalization led to downward pressure on wages for most workers would be labeled an economic ignoramus. So I've been in this debate for 30 years and have been subjected to, you know, being dismissed and and sneered at. And now it's turning out, you know, both in the United States and in other countries that people are uh, resisting that what uh, we around here would call the Davos party agenda. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's very strange the way Donald Trump did it. So let me just go over with you what I think is a a bait and switch that Donald Trump. Well, I was uh, going to come back to that a little bit, uh, just a little bit later. Um, Before, before, let's do that. Before we, before we forget, I won't. No, it's on my list. I promise. Don't forget. (laughs) Okay. Um, no, actually, before before we kind of go further into the substance of what he said, it's funny. Like one of the one of the pieces I read about his speech was that it was kind of surprisingly and, and unusually for him full of specifics. Right? It was it was pointed out that the prepared remarks that he posted online came with more than a hundred footnotes. And yet, when I when I read the speech and I and I hadn't seen it yet at that point, I thought, wow, you know, they they must have really loaded this thing up with facts. But then when I actually looked at it, the citations were were kind of like performative or perfunctory or something like. One of the lines that was quoted most often afterwards in, in the papers was about how stagnant wages and closed factories and, and, and everything else were were not the result of a natural disaster, but a politician-made disaster. And, and, and that line came with with not one but two citations. You know, this sort of generic pronouncement was you know had these two footnotes, both to to EPI blog posts. I, I wonder, like, what do you think he was sort of using you guys for? Like, what was what were he and his campaign trying to achieve or, or signal by sort of projecting this? like scholarly, serious vibe? You know, I'm an economist, not a political campaigner, but it it would appear that, you know, they were looking for citations to people who who do serious work and are authoritative. And I imagine that, you know, when you're a Republican and if you can cite someone on the center left that's not a Republican Party go-to place, um, it sort of suggests that what you're saying is, is more credible. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about his specifics. It, it is, uh, I'll, I'll give Trump credit that he did have 
three-hole bullet points on trade policy. Mm -hmm. And one, he does say that you need to address currency manipulation. And another, he said, we need to enforce our trade laws. And there weren't much specifics about that, but you don't get many specifics in a presidential speech. Where it was really kind of bizarre is this whole thing about, I'm going to renegotiate the trade treaties. And he, he talks about that a lot in his stump speeches. But what's curious is that he never really says, well, what am I going to try to get into the trade treaties? Right. What, what are my goals? What am I going to try to take out? What am I going to get in? Do you think he knows or, or do you think, I mean... I don't in, think he knows. Yeah. And I think that, um, I, I, I do think you have to offer, well, what exactly do you hope to, to gain? I'm going to renegotiate the trade treaties to do the following things, A, B, and C. None of that was there. And so it does seem like you know, a, a bit of a, of a, of a scam to do that. Um, you call you called it a scam in, in your blog post uh, that you posted, I think last night. I want you to come back to it and, uh, to that and explain why you see it that way more than you already have. But, but first I wanted to, to know, like, did Trump get anything right in his speech that they did? Were, were there parts of his speech where you said, you know, make some good points? Well, Trump. other people have noted that a lot of the things he claims about globalization could be heard in a, um, an ordinary graduate school seminar. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is correct that globalization has put downward pressure on, on wages and that we have lost jobs and good jobs as a consequence. I think uh, he doesn't really put the scale on it. And, you know, there's a great sin of omission of, of not talking about the other things that have suppressed wage growth over the last 40 years. Most of those I put at the at the feet of his allies in the business community, the ones whose taxes he wants to cut and whose regulation regulatory burden he wants to uh, ease. Those are the people who have decimated the unions, have what uh, who are fighting now the new Obama rule, which will provide overtime protections for 12 million middle class salaried workers. He basically aligns himself with the business community wanting to assure itself of a, of a long supply of cheap workers that will undercut American uh, jobs and, and wages. Right. And so in, in his speech, like the elites are represented by the Clintons, right? He, he, he sort of focuses Bill his... and Hillary. Yeah. Only. And he, it's understandable why he's doing that. I mean, what's wrong with just focusing on Bill and Hillary Clinton? Like, what's he leaving out when he makes them the big villains in this story? Well, uh, Bill Clinton couldn't have passed NAFTA without the business community and without the votes of Republicans, period, full stop. And, um, you know, one could even imagine that that was his effort to make the Democrats more acceptable to the business community in the era when, when Bill Clinton was a, a new Democrat. Right. So that that seems to ignore history. You know, th there's a high-minded view of globalization that goes, it, we all win, except for those people who get hurt, and we should take care of those who are hurt. And the main way we have helped to displace is a program called Trade Adjustment Assistance. Well, that program was decimated by none other than Ronald Reagan. And the Republicans in the House Ways and Means Committee keep on trying to eliminate whatever's left of it, which is a, really a, a shell of itself. Uh, they claim that trade adjustment assistance is a sop to unions. Well, it's not just union workers who get displaced by trade. You know, tell that to the people in South Carolina and North Carolina and Georgia. I feel like the fact that he leaves out everything that you've, you've just said, it, it kind of gets to the jujitsu he's trying to pull off in framing 
this argument in these kind of populist terms in which, you know, with which he's trying to appeal to like poor and struggling voters and convince them that, you know, all their financial problems are, you know, caused by these trade deals while also kind of appeasing or, or, or making clear to actual like elites that, that they are in his view, not, not part of the problem and they will not be part of his and, and dealing with them is, is not going to be part of his solution. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, to say? I think that's, I think that's, that's pretty fair. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a way that the people who were for globalization could have handled things that would have been a lot better. If you believe that this was important for perhaps expanding the uh, incomes of, uh, of low-wage nations abroad and that it might uh, expand the economy here, you know, you could do it in a way that, first and foremost, you try to, you know, really help the people that are directly going to be hurt. But secondly, you would want to do that in a context where you did everything possible to make sure that wages were rising and good jobs were being created, that you would keep unemployment low, that you would fight the attack on collective bargaining and unions. You would keep the minimum wage at a very high level. You would enforce labor standards you know, uh, that have become eroded over time, like the overtime provisions. You know, if we had a growing economy that went along with growing wages and people moving into better jobs, that globalization and its downward pressure, you know, might be able to be absorbed without creating um, such the ornery politics that we now observe in America. But, you know, that's what I would fault the business community and I would fault the globalizers in the Democratic camp because they didn't do that. So, in fact, all these people, I think, were fairly dismissive of the needs of, of blue-collar workers. And ultimately, you know, what's happened to blue-collar workers in the uh, 80s started happening to white-collar workers in the 90s and the 2000s. In the last 14 years, white-collar workers and college graduates have not received wage increases faster than inflation. So this is not something about so-called unskilled workers or just blue-collar workers. or or And it's certainly not something that's only happened to the white working class because whatever's happened to white working class wages has happened to black and Hispanic wages too, but even a little bit more. So I, I watched Trump's speech for the first time. I'd read it. I'd read the prepared remarks uh, previously, but I watched the actual video of him speaking before I came in here to talk to you. And like, I have to say that if you don't know the details, if you have, if you haven't thought through everything you've been talking about, if you haven't like read the, you know, uh, read the actual things that he's citing, there's something quite intuitive about his message, right? When you, when you, if, if you imagine yourself in the position of someone who has lost their job at a factory and you are being told that it's because of these elites who have favored other countries over, over America, the pieces sort of fit together um, if you don't look too hard. And I'm curious whether you worry at all that Trump will do any kind of long-term damage to what has been your cause for, as you said, 30 years by, you know, by associating trade protectionism with, you know, his brand of, of sort of angry white nationalism. You know, there's a bunch of unsavory people on every side of this issue. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, I would say that I do favor kind of a reasonable nationalism, but uh, I don't worry too much that anyone who wants to do globalization uh, in a way that is favorable to America's workers is going to be tarred with Trumpism and the and the racism and bigotry that that he profiles. Um, that's not one of my worries. 
but um, I, I guess that one of the questions is, is once Trump is defeated, and I think he will lose, um, mm-hmm. what is left? What, who will pick up the uh, banner of, of, of even trying to appeal to the working class and in which ways? You know, I don't think there will be any kind of realignment, uh, but... Um, but who knows? Everyone's been wrong about this so far. Lawrence Michel is the president of the Economic Policy Institute. Lawrence, thank you so much for being on the show. Okay. Thanks for having me. That is it for today's episode of Trumpcast. The show is produced by Jason DeLeon, whose trade policy, I can tell you, boils down to gimme, gimme, gimme. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai, who could sell ice in the winter. And Andy Bowers, who can sell fire to hell, is our chief content officer. Special thanks to John Domenico, our voice of Donald Trump. I am Leon Nafok. Thank you for listening to Trumpcast. At Ben Sass looks more like a gym rat than a U.S. senator. How the hell did he ever get elected?